If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Ira Cohen. He is the co-founder and chief data scientist at Anodyne, which has created an AI-based anomaly detection system. Before that, he was chief data scientist over at HP. He has a BS in electrical engineering and computer engineering, as well as an MS and a PhD in those same disciplines from the University of Illinois. Welcome to the show, Ira. Thank you very much for having me. So I love to start with the simple question, what is artificial intelligence? Well, there is the, the definition of artificial intelligence, of uh, machines being able to perform cognitive tasks uh, uh, that, that we as humans can do very easily. Uh, what I like to think about in artificial intelligence is machines taking on tasks for us that do require intelligence, but leave us time to do more thinking and more imagination uh, in, in the real world. So autonomous cars, I mean, I would love to have one. That requires artificial intelligence, and I hate driving. I hate the, the fact that I have to drive for 30 minutes an hour every day and waste a lot of time, you know, my cognitive time, thinking about the road. So when I think about AI, I think how it improves my life to give me more time to think about even higher-level things. Well, let me ask the question in a different way. I... I what is intelligence? That, that's, a, you know, that's a very philosophical question, yes. Uh, uh, so it has a lot of layers in it. So when I think about intelligence for, for humans, it's uh, the ability to imagine something new. So imagine, imagine, have a problem and imagine a solution and think about how it will look like without actually having to build it yet and then going and implementing it. Uh, that's when I, that's what I think about intelligence. But a computer uh, can't do that, right? That's right. So, so when I think about artificial intelligence, personally at least, I, I don't think that uh, at least in our lifetime, computers will be able to solve those kind of problems. Uh, but uh, there is a lower level intelligence of, of understanding the context of where you are and being able to take actions on it. And that's where I think that uh, machines can do a good task. Uh, so understanding a context of the environment and, uh, and, uh, and, and take, ac- take immediate actions based on that, that were already, that, that are not new, but really were already, um, people know how to do them and you therefore we can code them into machines to do that. Well, I'm only going to ask you one more question along these lines and we'll move on, but, but you keep using the word understand. Can a computer understand anything? Um, so, so yeah, the word understanding is, uh, is another, you know, hard word to say. I think it can understand, well, under, at least it can recognize concepts. Understanding maybe requires a higher level thinking, uh, but understanding context and being able to take an action on it is what I think understanding is. So if I see a kid going into the road while I'm driving, I understand that this is a kid. I understand that I need to 
hit the brake. Uh, and I think machines can do those, those, these type of understanding tasks. Fair enough. So if somebody said, what is the state of the art? Like they said, where, where are we at with this? Because it's in the news all the time and people right. read about it all the time. So where are we at? So I think we're, we're at the point where machines can now uh, recognize, recognize a lot of, uh, recognize what either in images and audio and various types of data, uh, recognize with sensors, recognize that there are objects, recognize that there are words being spoken uh, and identify them. That's, that's really where we're at today. Uh, we're not. We're, we're getting to the point where they're starting to also act on these recognition tasks. Uh, but most of the research, most of what uh, what uh, AI is today, is the recognition tasks, and, and that's the first step. And how much? So let's just talk about one of those. Do you do you do? Give me something that uh, that some kind of recognition that you've worked on or have deep knowledge of, teaching a computer how to do. All right. So, so when I did my PhD, uh, I worked on on effective effective computing. So, uh, part of the PhD was to uh, have machines uh, recognize emotions from facial expressions. So, it's not really recognize an emotion; it's recognizing a facial expression and what it may express. Uh, so there are six universal facial expressions uh, that, that we as human exhibit. Um, so smiling is associated with happiness. There is surprise, anger, uh, disgust, uh, and, and all those are actually universal. So the task that, that I worked on was to build classifiers that given an image or a sequence of a video of a person, a person's face would recognize um, whether they're happy or, or sad or disgusted or surprised or afraid. So how do you do that? Like, do you start with biology and you say, well, how do people do it? Or do you, do you start by saying it doesn't really matter how people are doing it. I'm just going to brute force show enough, uh, you know, labeled data that it, that it can figure it out that it just learns without, without ever kind of having a deep understanding of it. All right. So this was, this was in the, uh, the early 2000s, and uh, we didn't have uh, deep learning yet. Uh, we had neural networks, but they weren't, uh, we weren't able to train them with you know, huge amounts of data. And there, there, weren't, there wasn't a huge amount of data. So the brute force approach was not uh, the way to go. What, we actually, uh, what, what I actually worked on is based on a, a research by psychologists that, show, that actually mapped facial movements uh, to uh, known expressions and therefore to known emotions. This is, so it started out in the 70s by people in the psychology field, uh, Charles Ekman uh, in uh, San Francisco, who mapped out actual, he, he created a map of, of facial uh, movements into facial expressions. And so that was the basis of what are the type of features I need to extract from video and then feed that to a classifier. And then you, then you go through the regular process of machine learning, of collecting a lot of data, uh, but the data is transformed. So these videos were transformed into known features of facial movements, and then you can feed that into a classifier that will learn it uh, in a supervised way. 
So I think a lot of the tasks around intelligence are that way. It's being changed a bit by deep learning, which uh, uh, supposedly takes away the need to, to know the features a priori and do the feature engineering uh, for the machine learning task. Why but, do you say uh, supposedly? Uh, because it's not, it's, it's not completely true. You still have to do, even in speech and even in, uh, in images, you still have to do some transformations of the raw data. It's, uh, it's not, not just take it as is and it will work magically and, and do everything for you. There is some, there is some you, you do have to, for example, in speech, you do have to do various transformations of the speech into all sorts of uh, uh, short-term Fourier transform or other types of transformations, uh, without which the methods afterwards will not, just pr will not produce results. Um, so, you know, if I look at a photo of a cat, you know, that somebody's posted online or a dog that's been surprised you know it's kind of comical uh you know you the look of surprise say but a human can can recognize that in something as simple as a stick figure um what are we doing there do you think uh is that a kind of transfer learning or how is it that that you could show me an alien and and i would say ah he's happy um right. what do you think we're doing there yeah we're doing transfer learning so this is uh yeah those are those are examples really examples of us taking one concept that we've, we were trained of uh, from the day we were born uh, with our visual uh, cortex and also then in the brain because our brain is designed to identify emotions just out of uh, the need to survive. And, and then when we see something else, we try to map it onto concept that we already know. And then if, we, if something happens that is different uh, from what we expected, then we start training to that, uh, to that new concept. So if we see an alien smiling, and all of a sudden when he smiles, he shoots at you, you, understand, you, you would quickly understand that smiling for an alien is not associated with happiness. But you will start off by thinking this could be happy. Yeah, I think that uh, I, re I remember reading that hours after birth, children who haven't even been, babies who haven't even been trained on it can recognize the difference between a happy and a sad face. I think they got sticks and put drawings on them and tried to see the baby's reaction. So it may be even something deeper than something we learned, something that's like encoded in our, in our DNA. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that may be true because we need to survive. So why do you think we're so good at it? And and machines aren't right. Like machines are terrible right now at transfer learning. We don't. We don't. We don't really know how it works, do we? Because we can't really code that that abstraction that a human gets. So. So I think I, th I I think that from what from what I see first, it, it, it's being changed. I see work coming out of uh, the Google AI lab that is starting to show how they are able to to train single models, very large models that are able to do some transfer learning on some tasks, and so it start it is starting to change. It's about so so machines have a very different. Uh, so they don't, have, they don't have to survive. They don't have this notion of danger and surviving. And I think until we are able to somehow encode that in them, uh, we would always have to ourselves uh, code the new concepts or understand how to code for them how to learn new concepts during using transfer learning. 
you know, the roboticist Rodney Brooks talks about the juice. He, he talks about how if you put an animal in a box like, and it feels trapped, it just tries and tries to get out. And, and, and you know, it, it clearly has a deep desire to get out. But you program a robot to do it. The robot doesn't have what he calls the juice. Right. Um, and he, of course, doesn't think it's anything spiritual or metaphysical or anything like that. But what do you think that is? What do you think that the, the juice, because that's what you just alluded to. Machines yeah, don't yeah. have to uh, survive. So what do you think that is? So, so yeah, I think it. I think uh, he, he's he's right. They don't have the juice. Actually, the, in in my lab and my uh, during my PhD, we had some students working on uh, teaching robots to move around. And actually, the way they did it is with uh, uh, rewards and punishments. So, so they would get that they actually coded. Uh, just like you have in uh, in reinforcement learning. If you hit a wall, you get a negative reward. If if the robot moved and did something that uh, he wasn't supposed to, uh, the the PhD student would yell at them, uh, and that would be encoded into a negative, uh, negative reward. And if they did something right, they had actions that gave them positive rewards. Now, it was all kind of fun and games, but... Potentially, if you if you do this for long enough uh, with a, enough feedback, the robot would learn what to do and what not to do. The the, the main thing that's different is that it still lives in that sm- in the small world uh, of where they were in the lab or in the hallways of our labs. Um, it it didn't have the intelligence to then take it and transfer it to somewhere else. Um, but the computer can never, I mean, the, 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 the inherent limit in that is the computer can never be afraid, be ashamed, be motivated, be happy. Yes. Be, yeah. Do you know? It doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the long-term reward or the, 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 the urge to survive, I guess. There's, um, you may be familiar with this, but I, I'd like to set it up anyway. There was a, a robot in, uh, in Japan. It was uh, released in a mall. And it was basically being taught how to get around. And if it ran into a person, if it came up to a person, it would politely ask the person to move. And if the person didn't, it would just zoom around them. And what happened was children would be, uh, you know, would, uh, would just kind of mess with it. They would jump in front of it when it tried to go around them and again and again and again. But then uh, the more kids there were, the more likely they were to get brutal. They would hit it with things. They would, they would yell at it and all of that. And the programmers ended up having to program it that if, if it had a bunch of short people around it, like children, it needed to find a tall person, an adult, and zip towards it. <laughs> but the distressing thing about it is when they later asked those children who had done that, they said, did you cause the robot distress? 75% of them said yes. And um, did uh, I, I take that back? Yes, that's right. And then they asked it if it behaved human-like or machine-like and only 15% said it behaved machine-like and um, and that they so they thought they were actually causing it distress and that it was behaving like a human would what do you think that that says does that concern you in any way um, personally it doesn't because I know that as long as machines don't have real affect in them uh, then then well, I, I, let's, we, let's, we, 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 might be, we might be transferring what we think stress is onto a machine that 
that doesn't really feel that uh, that stress. It's really right, I, about code. Right. I guess the concern is is that if you get in the habit of treating something that you regard as you know being in distress, if you get in the habit of treating it callously, that mm. you know this is what Weizenbaum you know said. He he thought that it would have a uh, dampening effect on human empathy which, uh, you know, would, would not be good. So let me ask you this. What do you think about embodying artificial intelligence? Because you think about the different devices. We have, um, you know, Amazon has theirs. It's right next to me, so I can't say its name, but it's a person's name. <laughs> right. uh, um, Apple has Google. Siri. Um, Microsoft has Cortana. But, but Google just has the Google Assistant. It doesn't have a name. Right. Uh, do, you, do you think there's anything about that that like why do you think that is why do we want to name it or not name it why would we decide not to name it do you think we're going to want to interact with these uh, devices as if they are other people or are we always going to want them to to be obviously mechanistic uh my personal feeling is that we we want them to be mechanistic they are they are there not to not to exist on their own accord and reproduce and create you know a new world they're there to help us that's the way i think ai should be uh to help us and 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 in our, in our tasks and therefore when you start uh, humanizing it uh then you're going to you're going to either have the danger of mistreating it treating it like basically slaves uh or um or you're going to give it other attributes that are that are not not what they are thinking that they are human and then uh, you know going the other other route and and they're there to help us just like robots uh or just like the, you know, the industrial revolution brought machines that helped humans manufacture things better, so they're they're there to help us. I mean, we're creating them not as beings, but rather as machines that help us improve humanity. And if we start humanizing them and then either mistreating them, like you mentioned with the Japanese uh, example, then it's going to get mug muddled, and and strange things can happen. But isn't that really what is going to happen? I mean, your PhD alone, which is how do I, how do you spot emotions? Presumably, would be used in a robot so that it could spot your emotions, and then presumably it would it would be programmed to empathize with you. Like, don't be worried, it's okay, don't be worried. And then, to the de degree it then has empathy with you, um, you know, you have an emotional attach attachment to it, and don't you go down that path? It might, but I think we can stop it. So, so the reason to, the, to, the, to identify the emotion is because it's going to help me do something. So, for example, our uh, research project was around creating uh, assistance for kids to learn. So in order to help the kid learn better, we need to empathize with, with the state of mind of the, of the child so it can help them learn better. So that was the goal of the task. And I think as long as we encapsulate it in, in well-defined goals that help humans, then uh, we won't have the danger of, uh, of creating you know, the, the other way around. Now, of course, maybe in 20 years, uh, what I'm saying now is it will be completely wrong and we'll have a new world where we do have a world of robot, robots that we have to think about how do we uh, protect them uh, from, our, from us. Uh, but 
but I, I think we're not there yet. I think it's uh, it's a bit science fiction yet at this point. So I, I'm I'm still uh, referring back to your earlier supposedly comment about neural nets. What do you think are other misconceptions that you run across about artificial intelligence? What do you think are like your own pet peeves of like that's not true or that's not how it works or uh, does anything come to mind? Yeah, a lot of. I mean, people think uh, the, because of the hype, people think that it does a lot more than it really does. Uh, we know that it, it it's really good at, at classification tasks. It's not yet very good at uh, anything that's. Uh, you know, not classification, uh, unsupervised tasks. It's it's not being able to learn new concept all by itself. Uh, it's re- you really have to code it, and it's really hard. You need you need a lot of good people that uh, that know the art of applying uh, um, neural nets to to different problems, and it doesn't happen just magically with the way people think. When you, I mean, you're of course aware of. High-profile people, um, I mean, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so forth, who are worried about what a, a general intelligence would do. You know, they, they use terms like existential threat and all of that. And they also, not to put words in their mouth, believe that it will happen sooner than later, right? Because yeah. um, you get Andrew Ng who says, you know, worrying about that kind of stuff is worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You know, maybe in a couple of hundred years you have to give it some thought, but you don't really right, right. now. So right. where do you think their concern comes from? Um, so so I, I'm not really sure, and I don't want to put any uh, words in their mouth either, but... Uh, I mean, the way I see it, we're still far off from 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 it being an exist, existential threat. The main concern is, as you might have people uh, who will try to do uh, to try to abuse AI to to actually fool other people. Um, that I, that I think is the biggest danger. Uh, I mean, look at um, I don't know if you saw South Park's episode last week of uh, uh, they had their uh, first episode where they Cartman actually bought an Alexa and started talking to his uh, Alexa and I hope your Alexa doesn't start working now I have had headphones on so (laughs) she won't hear us don't worry good so it basically activated a lot of Alexas around the country Uh, so he was adding stuff to the shopping cart really disgusting stuff uh he was setting alarm clocks he was doing all sorts of things and and i think the danger of uh, the ai today is really getting abused by by other people for bad purposes in this case it was just funny uh but you can have cases where you know people will will control autonomous cars other people's autonomous cars by putting pictures at the side of the road and causing them to swerve or stop or you know do things that they were not supposed to uh or building building ai that will attack other types of uh, ai machines so that, that so i think the danger comes from misuse of the technology just like any other technology that came out into the world and and we have to and and i think that's where you know, that's where the worry comes from and making sure that, that we put some sort of, uh, you know, ethical code of how to do that. 
what would that look like? I mean, it's a vexing problem. Yes, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer okay. to that. So there are a number of countries, um, maybe as many as 20, that are working on weaponizing, building AI-based um, weapon systems that can make autonomous kill decisions. Do you, does that worry you? Because that sounds like where you're going with this, uh, you know, if they put a, a plastic deer on the side of the road and make the car swerve, that's one thing. But if you make literally a killer, killer robot that goes around killing people, that's, that's a whole different thing. Does that concern you or would you call that like a legitimate use of the technology? I mean, this, this kind of use will happen. I mean, I think it will happen no matter what. It's already happening with drones that's, that are not completely autonomous, but they will be, they will be autonomous uh, probably in the future. I think, I don't know how it can be, this kind of, uh, this kind of progress can be stopped. The question is, I, I mean, the danger, I think, is do these robots start having their own decision-making and intelligence that, that, uh, that decides, you know, just like in the movies, to attack all humankind and not just, you know, the side they're fighting on. Because, I mean, military progress, technology in military is something that, that, that has, I, I don't know how it can be stopped because it's, it's, it's driven by, by humans and our need to, to wage war against each other. Uh, the real danger is, do they turn on us? And, and if, there are, if there is real intelligence uh, in the artificial intelligence and real understanding and a need to survive uh, as, as a being, that's where it becomes really scary. So it sounds like um, you don't necessarily think we're anywhere near close to an AGI. And, and I'm going to ask you how far away you think we are. But I, I want to set the question up by saying that there are people who think we're five to ten years away from a general intelligence, and then there are there are people who think we're five hundred years. Uh, Oren Etzioni was on the show, and he said he would give anybody a thousand to one odds uh, that we wouldn't have it in five years. So if you want to send him ten dollars, he'll 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 put ten thousand against that. So why do you think there's such a gap, and where where are you in that continuum? Well, we, be, because the methods we're using are still so as smart as they got, they're still doing rudimentary tasks. Uh, they're still, you know, recognizing, you know, images. They're still doing, you know, the agents that are doing automated things for us are still really doing very rudimentary tasks. It's, it's general intelligence requires a lot more than that. It requires a lot more of an understanding of context. I mean, the example of Alexa last week, I mean, that's, that's a, perfect example of not understanding context, right? For us as humans, we would never react to something on TV like that and add something to our shopping cart just because Cartman said it. Uh, where even the, the very, very smart Alexa with amazing speech understanding uh, and, uh, and taking actions based on that, it's still, you know, it's still doesn't understand the context of the world. So I, I think it's you know, you know, prophecy is for fools, but I think it's uh, at least 20 years out. You know, we often look at artificial intelligence and its progress based on, on games where it beats the best player. It goes back to Kasparov in 97. With, right. uh, uh, you've got, uh, of course, Jeopardy. You have uh, AlphaGo. You had um, an AI beat some, some world-rated poker players. What do you think 
and those are always kind of like, you know, they, they create a, a stir. Like you, you kind of want to reflect on it. What do you think is the next thing like that, that one day snap your fingers and all of a sudden an AI just did what? Okay. Let me, I haven't thought about that. So all these games that what makes them unique is that they are a very closed world. They're very, I mean, the, the world of the game is, is finite uh, and, uh, and the rules are very clear. Even if, if there's a lot of probability going on, the rules are very clear. And I think in the real world, and this is maybe going back to the question, why, why it will take time for artificial intelligence to really be general intelligence, the real world is, 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 uh, is almost infinite in possibilities and uh, the way things can go. And even for us, it's really hard. Now, trying to think about a game that, uh, that the machines would beat us next in, yeah, it might, I, I wonder if, uh, if we were able to build robots that can do also sports, I think they can beat us easily in, in, in a lot of games. Because um, if you take any sports game, like football or basketball, they require intelligence. They require a lot of thinking, uh, very fast thinking and, and pathfinding by the, by the players. And if we were able to build kind of the, 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 the body of the robot that can do the, the motions just like uh, humans, I think they can easily beat us at all these games. Do you, do you as a practitioner, I, I'm intrigued by, by, on this topic of general intelligence, I'm intrigued by the idea that human DNA isn't really that much code. And if you look at how much code it, we are different than, um, say, uh, you know, a chimp, it's very small. I mean, it's a few megabytes. Uh, that would be our, how we are, you know, programmatically different. And yet that little bit of code makes us have a general intelligence and a chimp not. Um, does that persuade you or suggest to you that general intelligence is a simple thing that we just haven't discovered? Or do you think that general intelligence is, is a hack of a hundred, a thousand different, like it's got to be a long slog until we finally, you know, get it together. So, so I think the latter, um, <clears throat> just because of the way you see human progress, and it's not just about uh, the one person's intelligence. Uh, I think what makes us unique is the ability to, to combine intelligence of a lot of different people to, to solve tasks. And that's, that's another thing that, uh, that makes us very different. So you, you do have some people that are geniuses that can solve really, really hard tasks by themselves. But if you look at human progress, it's always been around combined intelligence uh, of uh, you know, getting, getting one person's uh, uh, contribution than another person's contribution and, and thinking about problems together to solve them. And sometimes you have breakthroughs that come from an individual, but more often than not, it's the combined intelligence that creates the, the, you know, the drive forward. And that's the part that I think is hard, uh, hard to, to, to put into a computer. Um, you know, there are people that have amazing savant-like abilities. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've read a few. I remember reading about um, 
a man who, uh, named uh, Danzig, and he was a graduate student in statistics. And his professor put two famous unsolvable slash unsolved program uh, problems on the blackboard. And Danzig arrived late that day, and he saw them and just assumed they were the homework. So he hmm. copied them down and went home. And later he said he thought they were a little harder than normal, but he solved them both and turned them in. Right. And I, I mean, that's like really happened. It's not one of those uh, urban, urban legend kind of things. You have people who can uh, read the left and right page of a book at the same exact time. You have, uh, you know, you just have people that are these extraordinary edge cases of human ability. Does that, does that suggest that we are, that our intellects are actually far more robust than, than they are? Or what, what, does that suggest anything to you as, a, as, an, as an artificial intelligence guy? Right. So, so coming from the probability space, it just means that our intelligence has a wide distribution and there are always exceptions in the tails, right? Uh, and, and these kind of people are in the tails. And often when they are discovered, they can create monumental breakthroughs in our understanding of the world. Uh, and, and that's what makes it so you, what makes us so unique? You have a lot of people in the center of the distribution that are still contributing a lot and making advances to 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 the world and to our understanding of it, and 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 not just understanding but actually creating new things. So you know, I'm not a genius. Most uh, people are not geniuses, but we still create new things and are able to advance things. And then every once in a while, you get these uh, tales of the distribution intelligence that could solve the really hard problems that nobody else can solve. And that's, uh, so, so the combination of all that actually makes us push things forward in the world. And I think that's kind of intelligence, combined intelligence, something that you know, well, artificial intelligence is way, way off. I mean, it's not anywhere near. Because we don't understand how it works, I think it will be hard for us to even code that into into machines that's one of the reasons i think ai you know the way people are afraid of it is, is still way way off but but by that analysis that sounds like to circle that back there mm -hmm. will be somebody who comes along that has some big breakthrough in the general intelligence and ta-da it turns out all along it was you know bubble sort or something <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's that simple. That's the thing. I don't think it's that simple. So, so solving, solving a statistical problem that's really, really tough, it's not like... So I, I don't think it's a well-defined enough problem that some that will take a genius just to understand, oh, it's that neuron going right to left, and that's it. Uh, so it, it, I don't think it's that simple. It might be breakthroughs in mathematics that help you understand the computation better, uh, maybe quantum computers that will help you do faster computation so you can uh, train much, much faster than machines so they can do tasks much better. But it's not about understanding the, the, the concept of what makes a genius. I think that's, that's more complicated. But maybe it's my limited way of thinking. Maybe I'm not intelligent enough, is it? Uh, no, no. Um, so let me ask a, a slightly different, you know, well, actually, to stay on that point for a minute, it's interesting and I think perhaps telling that we don't really even understand how human intelligence works. Like if right. we really knew that, you know, we don't know how a thought is encoded in the brain. Like if I said, um, 
If I said, Ira, what color was your first bicycle? Can you answer that question? I don't remember. <laughs> well, let's probably assume, blue. Let's assume for a minute you did remember, because mm -hmm. it um, it makes my example bad. But it's like there's no bicycle location in your in your brain that stored the first bicycle, like an icon or something, and and it was just right. a database lookup. Like nobody knows like how that happens, and then not only how it's encoded, but how it's retrieved. And then you were talking earlier about synthesis and how we use it all together. We don't know any of that. Does that suggest to you that? On the other end, that maybe we can't make a general intelligence, or, or, or at the very least, we cannot make a general intelligence until we understand how it is that people are intelligent. That that may be, but uh, yeah. First of all, maybe if we, if we, even if we made it, if we don't understand it, then how would we know that we made it? That's uh, circling back to to that. I think the way we it's just like the kids, right? They they were thinking that they 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 were thinking they were causing stress to the robot because they were giving it. They thought they understood stress and and the affect of it, uh, and they were transferring it onto the robot. So maybe when we create something very intelligent that looks to be like us, uh, we would think we created intelligence, but we wouldn't know that for sure until we know what is general intelligence really is. So do you believe that general intelligence is an evolutionary invention that will come along on, if, you know, in 20 years, 50 years, 1,000 years, whatever it is, that it is something that will come along out of the techniques we use today for narrow AI? Like, are we building really, really, really primitive general intelligences? Or do you have a feeling that a real AGI is going to be a whole different kind of approach in technology? I think it's going to be a whole different approach. I think what we're building today are just machines that do tasks that we humans do in a much, much better way. Uh, uh, and, and just like we built... Uh, machines in the in the industrial revolution that that did what people did with their hands but did it in a much faster way and better way that's the way i see what we're doing today uh and it's uh, and maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm totally wrong and we're giving them a lot more uh general intelligence than we're, than we're thinking but the way i see it it's driven by economic powers it's driven by the, the by by uh, the need of companies to advance and, and take away tasks that uh, that cost too much money to do by humans or are too slow to do by humans, uh, and and revolutionizing that way. And I'm not sure that we're really giving them general intelligence yet. Still, we're giving them ways to solve specific tasks that we want them to solve, and not something very very general that uh, that can just live by itself and and create new things by itself. Let's let's take up this thread uh, that you just touched on about we build them to do jobs we don't want to do, uh, and, and you analogize it to the um, Industrial Revolution. So as you know, but just to set the problem up, there's kind of three different narratives about the effect this technology combined with robotics, we'll call it automation in general, are going to have on jobs. And the three scenarios are, one is that it's going to destroy an enormous number of, quote, low-skilled jobs, and that there will, by definition, be fewer low-skilled jobs and more and more people competing for them, and you will have kind of this permanent 
underclass of unemployable. Like it's like the Great Depression in the U.S. just forever. And then you have people who say, no, it's 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 different than that. What it really is is they're going to be able to do everything we can do. They're going to have escape. Once once a machine can learn a new task faster than a person, they'll take every job, even the creative ones. They'll take everything. And then a third one says, no. For 250 years, we've had 5 to 10% unemployment. It's never really gotten out of that range other than the anomalous depression. And in that time, we had electricity. We had mechanization. We had steam power. We had the assembly line. We had all of these things come along uh, that sure looked like job eaters, but what people did is they used the new technology to increase their own productivity and drive their own wages higher. And that's the story of, of progress that we have experienced. So which of those three things? theories, or maybe a fourth one, uh, do you think is the correct narrative? So I think the third theory is the, is probably the more correct narrative. Uh, it just gives us more time to use our imagination and be more productive at doing more things and improve things. Uh, so all of a sudden we'll have time to think about going and conquering the, the stars, right? And, and living in the stars or improving our lives here in various ways. That that they, the only thing that scares me is is uh, it's the speed of it. Um, if it happens too quickly, too fast, and and so 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 we're humans. It takes it takes as a human race. It takes some some time to adapt. If the change happens so fast and people lose their job too quickly before they're able to uh, kind of retrain for the new economy, the new way of uh, uh, the fact that you know some positions will not be available anymore that's the real danger i think and if it happens too fast around the world then there could be a backlash i think what will happen is that the, the progress will stop because some backlash will happen in the form of wars or all sorts of uh, uh you know uprisings uh, because at the end people need to live people need to eat and, and if they don't have that and they don't have nothing to anything to live for they're going to rise up they're not just gonna you know disappear and die by themselves so that's that's the real danger if the change happens too rapidly you can have a, a depression that will cause will actually cause the slowness the progress to slow down uh, and and I hope we don't reach that because I would ra I would not want us as the world to reach that stage where we have to slow down because all the with all the weapons we have today this could be actually catastrophic too so what do you mean by that last sentence so I mean we have nuclear weapons oh, oh I see I see I see we have we have actual weapons that can that can not just not like it could actually annihilate us completely. You know, I I hear you. I like what would too fast be? Because well, first of all, we had that. Of course, when the industrial revolution came along, you had people who, uh, you know, you had the Luddite move, movement when Ludd broke two spinning wheels. You had uh, the Thresher riots in England in the eighteen twenties when the automatic threat. You had the um, what the first day the, the London Times was printed using steam power instead of people, uh, you know, they were going to go find the guy who invented that and, and string him up. I mean, you, you, have, you have a deep-rooted fear of, of um, labor-saving technology. That's a, that's a whole current that constantly runs. But what would Too Fast look like? Because we went, 
you know, electrification of industry happened just lightning fast. I, not, not to make a deliberate pun there. Uh, we went from, from generating 5% of our power from steam to 85% in just 22 years. What would too fast, give me a, a, a too fast scenario. Are you, are you thinking about the truck drivers or, or like, tell me how it could quote be too fast because you seem to be very cautious. Like, man, these technologies are hard and they take a long time and they're just a lot of work and it's all a slog. And then, right. So what would too fast look like to you? If it's less than a generation, uh, you know, if, if let's say in, in five years, really all taxi drivers and, and truck drivers lose their job because everything becomes automated, that seems to be too fast. If it happens in 20 years, uh, that's probably enough time to, to adjust. Uh, and, and I think, I think we, so, so it will start, the transition is starting and will start, you know, in the next five years, but will it will still take some time, uh, for it to really, to really take hold. Uh, because, you know, if people lose those jobs today and you have, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of, of people doing that, what are they going to do? Well, presumably, I mean... Classic economics says that when that, that that if that happened, the cost of taking a cab goes way down, right? Because, right. And if that happens, that frees up money that I no longer have to spend on an expensive cab, and that that I have I therefore spend that money elsewhere, right? I don't dig a hole and bury it. I spend it elsewhere, which generates demand for 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 more jobs. But but. But is the five-year scenario, it may be a technical possibility. Like, we may technically do it, but yeah. don't have, like, the legislative hurdle. I, I, I read a, exactly. in India saying they weren't going to allow self-driving cars in India because they would put people out of work. Then you have the retrofit problem, and then, you know, like, every city is going to want to regulate it, and they're going to say, well, you can have a self-driving car, but it needs to have a person behind the wheel to take over in case. I mean, like, you would say, look, we've been able to fly airplanes without a pilot for decades and yet no airline in the world would touch that right, right. it is airplane we have no pilot um right. even though that's that's probably you know the, the better way to do it um so do you really think we could have all the taxi drivers gone in five years no, no, and exactly for that reason. Uh, even if the technology really allows it, uh, first of all, I don't think it will totally allow it because uh, uh, for it to really take hold, you you have to have a majority of cars on the road be autonomous. Uh, just yesterday, uh, uh, I was in San Francisco and and uh, I heard a guy t saying he was driving behind uh, uh, one of those self-driving cars in San Francisco. And, and he got stuck behind it because it wouldn't take a left turn uh, when it was green and it just forever wouldn't take a left turn that humans would. Now, the reason it wouldn't take a left turn because there are other cars that are human driven on the road and it was coded to be very, very careful about it. And, and he was late 15 minutes to our meeting just because of that self-driving car. Now, now, so, so I think that the, because there, is, there will be a long transition, partly because legislation will, will regulate it and, and slow it down a bit, which is a good thing. You don't want to change too fast, too quickly, without ha making sure that, that it really works well in the, in the world. Uh, and 
as long as there is a mixture of uh, humans driving and, and uh, machines driving, the machines will, will be a little bit lame because they, they will be coded to be a lot more careful than us. And, and we're impatient. So, so, so that will slow things down, which is a good thing. I think making, it too fa- making change too fast can lead to you know, all sorts of economic problems as well. You know, in Europe, they had this, um, I think it was, it was, I could be wrong on this, but it was first, I think, passed in France, but it's being considered by the entire EU, and it's, it's the right to know why the AI decided what it did. If, if an AI makes a decision uh, to deny you a loan or, or what have you, uh, you had the right to know why it did that. Is that, whether or not that's, I, I had a simple question, which is, is that possible? Like, could Google ever say it's like i'm number four for this search and my competitor's number three why am i number four and they're number three i mean is google big and complicated enough and you don't have to talk specifically about google but our system's big and complicated enough that it's like well you don't know it's like there are so many thousands of factors that go into this thing that many people have never even looked at it's just a whole lot of training Right. Uh, so, so in principle, the methods could tell you why they made that decision. It's about, I mean, even if there are thousands of factors, you can go through all of them and, and, and have not just the output of the recognition, but also highlight what were the attributes that caused it to decide uh, it's one thing or another. So um, from the technology point of view, it's possible. Uh, from the practical point of view i think for a lot of problems you don't you don't you won't really care i mean if if it recognizes that there is a cat in the image and and you know it's right you won't care why it recognized that cat uh, i guess for some some problems where the system made a decision uh, that that you don't necessarily know why it made the decision uh, or you ta- have to take action based on that 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 recognition uh, you would want to know so if I if I predicted for you that your revenue is going to um, increase by 20% in the next week you would probably want the system the system to tell you why do you think that's happened because there isn't a clear reason for it that you would imagine yourself but if the system told you there is a there is a face in this image uh, and you look at the image and you know how you can see that there is a face in the, in, in the image, then you wouldn't have a problem with it. So that, I, I think it really depends on the problem that, uh, that you're trying to solve. We talked about games earlier and you, you pointed out that they were closed environments and that that's really a place with, with explicit rules. And that's really a place that an AI can excel. And, right. and also to add to that, um, there's a clear-cut idea of what winning looks like and, yes. uh, and what a point is. Uh, I think somebody on the show said, you know, like, who's winning this conversation right now? Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no way to kind of do that. So my question right. to you is, are there business – if you walk around an enterprise and you say, where can I apply artificial intelligence to my business – would you look for things that look like games? Like, okay, HR, you get all, you have all these successful employees that get high performance ratings, and then you have all these people you had to fire because they didn't, and then you get all these resumes in. Which ones look more like the, the, the good people as the bad people? Is that, is that, are there lots of things like that in life that look like games, or is the whole game thing really 
a distraction from solving kind of real world problems. Nothing really is a game in the real world. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think we wrong to look at it in a, as a game because, uh, um, because the, the, the rules first there is no clear notion of winning uh there is what what you want is is progress you want you want you have you have goals that you want to progress towards you want for example in business you want your your company to grow that could be a goal or you want it you want the profits to grow uh you want your revenue to grow so so you make these goals um because though that's how you want things to progress and then then you can look at all the factors that uh, that that help it grow and the world of how to make it grow is, is very large there are so many factors so if i look at my employees there might be a low performing employee in one aspect of my business but maybe his you know maybe that employee uh, brings to the team you know a lot of humor that causes them to be productive and i don't i can't measure that uh and and those kind of things are really really hard to measure and so looking at at, at it from a very analytic point of view of just a game would probably miss a lot of important factors so tell me about um the company you co-founded anodot because you you make an anomaly detection system using ai so right First of all, explain kind of what that is and what it looks like, but how did you approach that problem? It, it, it's not a game. Instead, right. you looked at it this way. Right. So, so what are anomalies? Anomalies are anything, anything that's unexpected. So our, our approach was um, you're a business and you're collecting lots and lots and lots of data related to your business. At the end, you want to know what's going on with the, with the business. That's the reason you collect a lot of data. Now, when, you know, Today, people have a lot of different tools that help them kind of slice and dice the data, ask questions about what, what's happening there so you can make informed decisions about the future or react to things that are happening right now uh, in, that, are, that could affect your business. The problem with that uh, is that uh, uh, basically, why, why isn't it AI? It's not AI because you are basically asking a question and letting the computers compute something for you and giving you an answer. Whereas anomalies by nature are things that happen that are unexpected. So you don't necessarily know to ask the question in advance. And unexpected things can happen in businesses. For example, you see a certain uh, revenue for a product you're selling going down in a certain city. Why is that happening? Uh, if if you don't look at it and if you don't ask the question in advance, you don't even uh, you're not even aware that that is happening. So AI, the the great thing about AI and and machine learning algorithms is that they can process a lot of data, uh, and if you can encode into an uh, into a, into a machine an algorithm that identifies what are anomalies, you can find them at very very large scale, and that helps the companies actually detect that things are you know things are going wrong or detect the opportunities that they have that they, they might miss otherwise where the end game is very simple to help you uh, improve your business constantly and maintain it and and avoid the risks of doing business so so it's it's not it's not it's not a game it's actually bringing immediate value uh, to a company, highlighting, uh, making light, putting light on the data that they really need to look at uh, with respect to their business, uh, 
And, and the great thing about machine learning algorithms, they, they can process all of this data much better than, than we could. Because what do humans do? They, they, we, put it, we graph them, we visualize the data in various ways. You know, we create queries from database about questions that we think might be relevant, but we can't really process all the data all the time uh, uh, in an economical way. I mean, you'd have to hire ar armies of people to do that. And machines are very good at that. So that's, what, that's why we built uh, Anodot. Give, give me an example. Like, tell me a use case or um, a real-world example of something that, that Anodot, well, that you were able to spot that a person might not have been able to. Right. So, so we have various uh, customers that are in the e-commerce business. And if you're in e-commerce and you're selling you know, a lot of different products, uh, various things could, could go wrong or opportunities might be missed. For example, if I'm selling uh, uh, coats and you know, I'm selling a thousand other products, I'm selling coats and now in a certain area of the country, there is an anomalous weather condition that became cold. Uh, all of a sudden, I'll see, uh, I won't be able to see it because it's hiding in my data, but people will start buying in that, in that uh, state, will start buying more codes. Now, if, so it's not like if, if, if somebody actually looked at it, uh, they would probably be able to spot it. Uh, but because there is so much data, so many things, moving parts, nobody actually notices it. Now, our AI system finds, oh, there is an anomalous weather condition and there is an uptick in selling that code. You better do something to seize that opportunity to, to sell more codes. So either you have to send more inventory to that region to make sure that if somebody really wants a code, you're not out of stock. If you're out of stock, you're losing revenue potential revenue, uh, or you can even offer uh, discounts for, for that region because you want to bring more people to your, your e-commerce site rather than the competition. So that's one, one example. And I assume uh, it's, it, it's also used in, in security. Is that where you're looking for, uh, or fraud in, in e-commerce or security and, and, and whatnot? Or are you really focused on kind of an e-commerce use case? Uh, so, 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 so we built a, we built a, a very a fairly generic platform that can handle a wide variety of use cases. We don't focus on security as is, but we do have customers that, uh, in part of their data, are were able to detect all sorts of security uh, related breaches, like bot activity happening on a site or fraud rings rather than not, not the individual fraud of an individual person doing a transaction, but if a lot, a lot of time frauds are, you know, it's, it's a, you know, not just one credit card, but somebody actually uh, doing it over time, and then you can create, you can identify the, those fraud rings. Most of our use cases have been around more the, the business-related data, either in e-commerce, ad tech companies, uh, online services, um, and uh, uh, so online services, any, anybody that, that is really data dependent to run their business and very data driven uh, in, in running their business. And, and most businesses are transforming into that. Even the, the old fashioned businesses are transforming into that because that, you know, that, that data has competitive advantage and, and being able to process that data to find all the anomalies gives you an even larger competitive advantage. So, uh, last question. You made a you made a comment earlier 
about um, freeing up people so we can focus on living in the stars. Right. People who say that uh, are generally uh, science fiction fans. I've noticed. <laughs> uh, if that is true, what what do you what view of the future? Um, as expressed in science fiction, do you kind of think is compelling or interesting or could happen? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a great question. I think that, that what's compelling to me about the future really is, is not whether we live in the stars or not in the stars, but really about having, having to free up our time uh, to think about the stars, to think about the next big things that, progress humanity to to the next levels uh to be able to explore you know new dimensions and solve solve new problems that we seek out new life and new civilizations it could be and it, it could be in the stars it could be on earth i mean it could be just you know having more time having more time on your hand uh gives you more time to to think about what's next when you're busy uh, surviving, then you don't have any time to think about, you know, think about art and think about music and advancing it or think about the stars or think about uh, the oceans. So, so that's the way I see AI and technology helping us, really freeing up our time to do more and to, to use our you know, collective intelligence and individual intelligence to, to imagine, imagine places that we haven't thought about before or we don't have time to think about before because we're busy doing the mundane tasks. That's really, for me, what, what it's all about. Well, that is a great place to end it, Ira. I want to thank you for taking the time and, and, and going on that journey with me of talking about all these different topics. It's such a, an exciting time we live in, and, yes, and your reflections on them are fascinating. So thank you again. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.